Well, you know, one of the things that I uh, love about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we are a church that, I, in my opinion, very much loves God. We love the things of God. We're uh, very interested in his word and uh, how to live a life before God that uh, would honor him and give glory to him. Uh, and extending from that, one of the things I also like about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we love our nation. Uh, you know, there's not uh, too many churches left today that uh, have a, a level of uh, care for the nation or country around them. Uh, they almost think that's not a good thing. Uh, and, and our church has stood, stood strong over the years in uh, attaching a love for our nation to uh, a love for God, or better yet, a flowing from our love for God. Uh, the reason I mention that is because, um, you know, when I was growing up in a small town in Ohio, I, I never thought that some of the things that are happening today I would ever see in my lifetime. I, I, don't, I don't want it to be a downer at all. We're going to have a very positive time in the Word today. But I think many of us can agree that the uh, nation that we had when we were children uh, or younger is certainly not the nation that we have now. And that's grievous for us and, and, and difficult for many of us because even in our, our worst analysis, we never thought it would be this way. And so what that causes me to do, and I hope it does you as well, is to pray on a regular basis for our nation uh, when this fall comes to vote, uh, to vote regularly because we still do have a say somewhat in the fabric of our nation and what have you, and then to do our part civically and, and societally to uh, make a dent and to continue to encourage our nation to at least have values that would be commensurate with God and civility and things like that. Um, we need to pray today. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, you have, maybe haven't checked the news yet today, and they're still very sketchy on exactly what happened, but there was a, another mass shooting uh, in, in Orlando uh, last night, and it could be now the largest mass shooting that our nation has had. Uh, it's looking that there's more than 50 people that have lost their lives. We're still waiting for details to come in. It's just hitting the news now. But when Troy and I were reading it, I felt led to mention it, and, and as I always do, to call us to pray as a church, to pray for our nation, certainly to pray for grieving families, and, uh, and just pray that uh, God uh, might move and have his hand upon this country that we do love and the people that we're trying to reach. It's interesting, uh, before I pray, I'll make this comment too, that um, you know, when something like this happens to our nation, uh, you can always go one of two routes in the preaching end of things. You can either talk about, you know, the culture wars and, and how to maybe, you know, instill values back into our nation, or you can talk about Jesus. Because uh, if people would get excited about Jesus, as I've argued, and I think this is inarguable, uh, everything else is going to fall into place. Uh, it really will. And ironically, uh, we had already established today that we're going to talk about Jesus. So <laughs> it's going to be a great message, and it really will segue into what's going on in our country. But uh, let's do this. Let's uh, bow campuses and venues. Let's bow right now. Let's pray for our nation as well as for our time in the Word. Uh, God, um, many of us uh, come from a, a culture and a time in which uh, things seemed a lot more smooth in our nation. Uh, we always have had Democrats and Republicans, and we've had more liberals and conservatives, and we've always had a sense of, of a multicultural aspect to our nation. But God, in the last 30 or 40 years, things seemingly uh, are getting out of control, and that 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 desperately concerns many of us. And God, this idea of the mass shootings is something I never uh, saw when I was a children, uh, when I was a child, God. We didn't see it as children, at least as much. 
And yet, Lord, they seem to be more and more commonplace. And so, God, as we hear of news coming out of Orlando that there uh, could potentially be the, the largest mass shooting, we don't know the details completely yet, God, our hearts go out to the families and to the friends of those who have lost their lives to senseless tragedy. And we pray, God, that you would bring comfort uh, to them and a sense of your presence. Our, our, our Lord, our prayers would also go through the realm of justice, God, that you would bring justice to uh, whatever caused that and that, Lord, good would prevail. And God, it would cause us, too, to pray for our entire country that God, as we have been praying as a church, that uh, what was once, Lord, a country that generally speaking embraced values that were commensurate with your word, uh, God, those have seemed to have eroded. And so, God, we pray that you might do something to wake our country up, Lord. We would not even be shy to pray for revival and, and that the love of Christ might pervade over this land. Uh, God, as we turn now to your word, uh, we ask that you would give us insight and wisdom. We're wrapping up a series here today, Lord, that has ministered to many of us as we've allowed the Lord Jesus to speak to our hearts and our minds. He's going to speak again today, and we pray, God, that his words might penetrate and might change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. So if I don't miss my guess, just about everybody here today and everybody watching online and at our campuses and venues has ridden on an elevator. There's a few of you that haven't. You just don't like the contraptions, but the vast majority of us have. They're very common. In fact, there's over 900,000 elevators in America today. In case you wondered, that's one elevator for every 344 people in America. And the invention of the elevator goes really far back. The Greek mathematician Archimedes created a primitive elevator in 236 B.C. The Romans had crude elevators. Louis XV had a elevator at the Palace of Versailles. Uh, but it wasn't until 1854 that elevators became immensely popular. And this was because before 1854, nobody trusted elevators, at least for human use. And here was the logic. Elevators had cables. Cables break. When cables break, the elevator falls. When the elevator falls, people die. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. And so elevators, generally speaking, were not trusted before the mid-1800s. Uh, but in 1852, a man by the name of Elisha Otis invented a braking system for elders, a foolproof method to stop an elevator should the cable break. And in 1854 in Manhattan, at what was then the equivalent to the World's Fair, Otis unveiled his new contraption. In fact, here's an artist's rendering of what happened during the World's Fair back then in 1854. And as you can see, you have Otis standing in a makeshift elevator here. It says the Otis Brothers and Company up here. It's hard to read. And what Otis did is every hour during this World's Fair, he would raise the elevator up. And then he would have his assistant cut the cable. You can see a cut cable right here. And as everybody waited with bated breath as to what would happen, the braking system would immediately stop the elevator and Otis would look at the crowd and say, all safe, ladies and gentlemen, all safe. 
And it was this event that was the birth of the Otis Elevator Company that many of you might have seen their names inside elevators today. And get this, over the past 160 years, it's become a mainstay in the elevator world. In fact, it's estimated that the equivalent of the entire world's population travels on an Otis Elevator escalator or moving walkway every three days. (laughs) We trust them that much. You see, here's what you and I need to grab on today today is we're going to segue into spiritual things in just a minute. And that is that trust is a very powerful thing. You see, when you have it, there's no stopping you. But when you don't have it, you are stopped dead in your tracks. And so when you have trust, you will ride up an elevator a hundred stories or more without a care in the world, doing it without even thinking about it. But when you don't have trust, you're going to confine yourself to the first few floors and take the stairways, as again, some of you even do in your own lives because you don't trust elevators. And it shows that when you have trust, you're great. When you don't, it's going to stop you in your life. In fact, here are the three undisputed facts about trust. This isn't from the Bible. We'll get to that in just a minute. This is just from common sense and revealed in the Otis Elevator story. And it's this. Trust occurs whenever we place confidence in someone or something. Pause on that. You guys display trust all the time, every day, in big ways and small ways. Stepping into an elevator, you don't even know it today, but before 1854, stepping into an elevator took an immense amount of trust. You were placing confidence in something a lot of people didn't have confidence in. And so now you step into an elevator and you don't think it's a big deal, but it's trust. You're trusting that that thing is well made. That's what trust is. It occurs every day when you place your confidence in someone or something. Second fact, trust is most difficult when someone or something seems to let us down. You've all experienced that. If the cable does ever break on you, you're gonna be hard pressed to trust an elevator again. (laughs) Because trust is difficult when somebody lets you down. Many of you have experienced, some of you have experienced that in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, even with your church. That when you are let down or seemingly let down, it's very hard to trust. And that's very natural. That's normal. It's how things should be wired. And then the third undisputed fact about trust is that no one ever follows someone or something that they don't trust. And that's why this is such an important thing. That's why before 1854, elevators were not very popular. Because no one was going to follow something that they didn't trust. And we're all smart enough to know that one. These are the three undisputed facts about trust. We're going to get back to these in just a minute. Now, I want to talk to you about Jesus and trust. We're wrapping up a series of messages here today in which we've been looking at what it takes to follow Jesus. Not just believe in him, but to follow him. And we're allowing John chapter 7 through 11 to be our guide, the gospel of John. And we've looked so far at nine traits that are needed to follow Jesus. Everything from tapping into his grace, to learning to hear from him, to being thirsty for him, and and much more. Things that we need, traits, if we're going to be followers of Jesus. And I, I think it's been an amazing look as Jesus has guided us through this. And as we wrap this up today, we're going to look at our 10th and final trait needed, and it's the trait of trust. And yet I'm going to warn you, based upon the three undisputed facts about trust, we're actually going to call this today ruthless trust. 
I stole that from Brennan Manning, who in his one of the very last books before he died, entitled the book Ruthless Trust. Uh, but really it's the idea of what Jesus is going to prevent before us today. Because watch this. He's going to give us the kind of trust that he's looking for that both abides by but also blows through our three undisputed facts about trust. You're saying, what does that mean? Well, I'll show you what I mean. Uh, John chapter 11, the final chapter in this series, and it's about halfway through the entire Gospel of John, is essentially one story from Jesus' ministry, but it's one powerful story. And it takes up almost the entire chapter. And for time's sake, we're going to focus primarily today on verses 17 to 27, and then you're going to read this week as your homework, verses 28 to the rest of the chapter, so we can all get it under our belt. Uh, but I want to fill you in on the first 16 verses so that we're all clear on what's happening in this chapter. And to do so, I'm going to and to do so, I'm going to uh, use this map here. We had it down last night. I'm going to use this map here. And, uh, and, and this is a map of Israel. And we're going to use this to walk through the first 16 verses. I think this will be kind of fun for you. If you've ever been to Israel, this will be a little bit of a review. But if you haven't, this will be helpful. Israel, as we all know, is a small landmass in the Middle East, and it's surrounded in the west by the Mediterranean Sea, and in the east by Jordan, north is Syria, and then south is Egypt. That's the nation Israel. And back in Jesus' day, there were three primary provinces that are mentioned in the New Testament. There's more provinces than three, but you want to know these three. You have Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is and Bethany, and then you have Samaria here in the middle of Israel, and then way far in the north, just south of Syria, is Galilee. Galilee, where Jesus' hometown of Nazareth was and Capernaum and then the Sea of Galilee. And so you have Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. And the story that we're looking at today takes place here in Bethany, about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And John 11 opens by telling us that in Bethany, where this red circle is, there was a family that had two sisters and one, brothers. Their one brother. Their name was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what's interesting about this family is that the other gospel writers tell us a little bit about them. They tell us that, that Martha was kind of a high-strung one and Mary was more laid back. Because when Jesus was at their house one day, uh, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, and Martha was doing the hospitality thing, and Martha gets all upset and says to Jesus, would you tell my sister the slacker, that's in the margins, would you tell my sister the slacker to get with the program and start helping with hospitality? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, chill out. She's chosen the better thing. And so we learn a little bit about Mary and Martha there. And then we learn in Matthew 26 that, that uh, Mary was the one, John tells us this, who rubbed Jesus' feet with her hair and anointed him with oil. And, and, and as a result of these experiences, get this, in John 11 it tells us twice that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And you're saying, well, big, big deal. I mean, Jesus loves all of us. Yeah, the Bible does say that, for God so loved the world. Rarely does it ever say, for God so loved Mary or Martha or Lazarus. But twice in John 11, it tells us Jesus had a very special affinity and love for this family. And they're here in Bethany. And Lazarus is sick and dying. And because Lazarus is sick and dying, Jesus, who is not with them right now, but is somewhere up here, they don't tell us where, they just say he's not in Judea, so now you see why it's important that I told you about Samaria and Galilee, he's somewhere up here in the blue circle, they send word to Jesus 
by messenger to say, the one you love, Lazarus, is sick. And it takes about a day for the messenger to get up there. And interestingly, at this point, Jesus says to his disciples and the messenger, well, we're not done here, so let's spend another couple of days, and then we'll get back to Lazarus. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, because this sickness will not end in death. Now, interesting, he didn't say Lazarus would not die, did he? He just says that this sickness will not end in death. But Lazarus ends up dying. We know because of the math, it's going to tell us later that Lazarus died four days before the time Jesus finally gets back to Bethany here. So if it took a day for the messenger to get up there, two days for Jesus staying there, and then a day for them to make it back, then Lazarus must have died almost right when the messenger left. And Jesus waited two more days. The disciples pushed back at this point. They said, we can't go back to Bethany because the Jews want to kill you. You know, in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, they're after you, and, and, and we can't go back there because it'll endanger our lives. And Jesus, you can read about it later, does this wonderful, wonderful teaching where he says, hey, we need to bring things into the light. We need to stop living in the darkness. We need to be courageous here. And you got to love Thomas, doubting, cynical Thomas, because Thomas ends the first 16 verses of us saying, okay, let's go to Jerusalem and die. And really, that's what he says. And, and so they start making their way back. Uh, to Bethany. And it's here that we pick up our story. And I warn you, it's here that things start to get really thick. Let's look at verses 17 to 20. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now, again, this just sounds like a very normal, everyday description. You have the fact that Lazarus had died, that they were doing burial preparations, uh, telling us where Bethany is, and then the fact that the Jews came to console them. That's a very tender thing. The word means comfort. So like we do today, family and friends were starting to surround them and, and help them with the loss of their brother. And then it tells us Martha went out uh, to meet Jesus at what we assume was the outskirts of the village. And that sounds like a wonderful thing, but as we're going to see here in just a second, uh, she kind of had an agenda. Remember, Martha's the high-strung one, right? She's the passionate one. She's not real happy with Jesus right now. And so look at what happens next in verses 21 to 24. It says, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. <laughs> now, now, folks, this is in a, in a very, very thick and wonderful dialogue here. Uh, uh, Martha begins by saying, Lord, if you bring here, he wouldn't have died. But why? Because Jesus was a miracle worker. Jesus had already healed a lot of people. And, and Jesus was the one who could prevent death as the son of God coming into this world. And so she said, if you'd been here, you probably could have healed him. But then she adds, even now, whatever you ask of God, I know that he will do. Which is obviously an insinuation here that even now you could raise him from the dead, even though we've never seen you do that, if you so choose. 
And Jesus, very interesting, in verse 23 here, it gives some very common words of consolation. This was kind of a phrase back then that the Jews would use in death to console each other. He says, your brother will rise again. And he's referring to the Pharisaical belief, uh, the Pharisees believed this, the Sadducees didn't, that, that, that there's a resurrection of the body, there's a resurrection of the soul and the body upon death for followers of Yahweh, and they were comforting each other with those words. Very similar to how you and I today as Christians would say to a fellow believer when somebody dies, hey, so-and-so is with the Lord. We say it that way today. Your brother will rise again. So-and-so is with the Lord. Very similar words. But notice what Martha does. This is semi-snarky, what he, she does here. She says to Jesus, the incarnate son of God, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Which is her way of essentially saying, I know Lazarus will be in heaven, but I want to see him again now. I want him back now. Which, by the way, gang, is an extremely common feeling when one experiences the loss of a dear loved one. Amen? It's an extremely common feeling in the initial throes of grief. God could have prevented this. He's God. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful, and he can heal the sick, and he can raise the dead. So why doesn't he choose to do so in my case? It's how many of us have felt at times in our lives, and it's how Martha is feeling right now. So simply note, because we're going to take off from here, that Martha is mired, rightly so, in the present. She is mired in here and now grief. And Jesus wants to do something about that to both meet her inner grief, but also lift her sights to something that is much more eternally significant and bigger, an agenda that he has for Martha that she desperately needs to respond to. What do I mean by that? Gang, as you read uh, this passage, the end of it later, you're going to realize that Jesus does end up giving Martha her miracle. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, which is something that he only does on one other occasion in the Gospels, ironically both times, to show God's glory, not just bring us comfort, but to do something with Jesus being here to show God's glory. But it's fascinating, when you look closely at this dialogue here, though, with Jesus and Martha, before he's going to perform this miracle, he has a much bigger and more eternally significant agenda for her that drastically affects our lives today. Look at verses 25 to 27. This is arguably the pinnacle, the mountaintop of this, of this entire chapter. Everything leads up to it and everything after it goes downhill from there. This is the summit of this chapter. Look at what happens. It says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. 
Now, folks, more than anything else, please notice that as Martha, as we've already established, is primarily focused on temporal life here, the physical life of the here and now with the loss of her brother Lazarus and her grief, Jesus is now heaven-bent on getting Martha to focus more on spiritual life, complete with its emphasis on eternity as well as the here and now. I mean, it's arguable that Martha has some emphasis on spiritual life, and Jesus affirms that. Martha's already said, I believe that Lazarus will be resurrected in the last day. And so Jesus bounces off that. Don't miss this. This is so rich. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So in a very real way, he's affirming what Martha already believes, this idea of eternal life, of an afterlife, of life even here and now on a spiritual level. He's affirming all of that. But notice that he's underlining it. He's not tying it at all to Lazarus. He's not saying your brother will rise again on the last day. He already tried that one. Now he's pulling Lazarus out of the picture. Please don't miss this. And he's underlining spiritual life for Martha. He's underlining eternal life for Martha. And then Jesus does a second thing here that's even, I mean, it's the most powerful thing. And it's really what makes the Gospels the Gospels. And that is that he then attaches this idea and hope of eternal life to himself and to belief in himself. And this is what rocked the first century when Jesus first showed up on the scene. Notice that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Commentators point out that he didn't say, I give resurrection and life. He could have said that, even though he does give it. No, he goes even a step further and says, I am it. I mean, whoever makes a claim like that? I am it. He is the focus, he himself. And then to be clear, he uses three times a very common word back then and a common word today. He says the word believe. You need to believe in me. That word means trust. It means to have confidence in something. It means to think something to be true to the point that you put your weight upon it. And in this case, the object of that weight, the object of what we think is to be true, the object of our confidence is Jesus. And after laying out that he is the resurrection of the life and the life, and that through him, this resurrection and life is secured through belief in him, he then asks the most tender, amazing, but powerful question that you could ever ask another person. And he asks it directly to Martha. He says, do you believe this? It's the operative, most important question for everybody on planet earth. What are you gonna do with Jesus? What are you gonna do? with this claim that he makes to be God come in the flesh, the eternal son of God who came for you to love you, to die for your sin, to to give a pathway to almighty God. And Martha answers with a very clear understanding of who Jesus is and what exactly she is trusting. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who can save us from our sins through forgiveness. You are the son of God. We would come to understand that to mean the eternal son of God, uh, the one who emanates from the father, 
three persons but one God, the great I am. And then she says, the one who is to come into this world, the long-awaited deliverer, eternally existent because he came into this world to bring us to God. Don't miss this, gang. No matter how you slice it, Martha's confession is all about Jesus, the only one who can give life as well as eternal life that our souls crave. And now don't miss that this entire dialogue, and I hinted to it earlier, is also about what I'm going to call ruthless trust. You're saying, what's that about? When you look closely here, (laughs) and I think we all have seen this in the story already, Martha feels very much let down by Jesus, doesn't she? She she feels that Jesus has broken those three undisputed facts of trust. He's asked us to put his confidence in him. But when it gets to number two, (laughs) Jesus seemingly lets us down, and he seemingly let Martha down, and yet he still asks that we trust him. Can any of you relate to that? On a temporal level, Jesus, in Martha's mind, had let her down. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that you can do whatever you want to do. So I'm really hoping you're going to do it. The implication being, if you don't, you're going to now even further let me down. Because you already let me down enough on a temporal level. Which is why it's important that we see this idea of temporal versus eternal. Because Jesus isn't going to play that game with Martha. Jesus is not going to play the game where he says, I am here to meet all of your temporal needs, that I'm here to make sure that you are always happy and satisfied on a temporal level. This is a fallen world, and that's not guaranteed. No, Jesus meets Mary, don't miss this, in those three undisputed facts, and in one very real way, he's going to meet them, and in another way, he's going to blow right through them. In a very real way, he meets her in them because he says this basically to her. You know what, Martha? When it comes to the things that really matter, like you not going to hell, like you having eternal forgiveness, like you having the constant presence of God in your life, like you having a power and a joy and a peace, unimaginable this side of heaven. When it comes to those things, I will never let you down if you trust in me. That's what he's saying to Martha. I have the keys to eternal life. I have the keys to the kingdom. And you're going to have that beginning now and extending all the way into eternity if you trust me. But if you're going to play the temporal game with me, if you're going to demand that I bless you in every area of life and do all the things that I want you, that you want me to do for you, ain't playing that game. That's precisely what Jesus says to us. In a very real way, he says, when it comes to the things that really matter for your soul, I'll never let you down. Yeah, I am always 100% trustworthy. But if you want to pile on expectation upon expectation upon expectation in my life, then yeah, you will probably be sorely disappointed. And that's why I call this ruthless trust. Because at the end of the day, this is our main point, gang. At the end of the day, this is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to trust him for everything, no matter what. And some of us think that's grossly unfair. Because we want to play the game Martha played with them. We want to say, well, you let me down though. And my kids didn't turn out like I thought they would. And it's your fault, God. (laughs) I I, I didn't get that promotion that I needed and I asked you for it and you didn't give it to me. When my marriage went south, I begged you to save it. And it wasn't saved. 
And you know, my emotions, I mean, I've been battling depression and anxiety and I've pleaded with you to take it away from me and I'm, I'm still in counseling and it doesn't always seem to help. And you want me to trust you? And what you guys need to see is that Jesus comes right back at that one. You gotta love Jesus. And he says, well, do you want the short answer or the long answer? Because the short answer is what? Yeah, you guys with me? The short answer is what? Yes, I want you to trust me. But the long answer is, is that you're trusting me for everything, no matter what, because on the things that matter most, the resurrection and the life, even though you die, you will live. And those who live now will never die. When it comes to those things, I will never, ever, ever let you down and more. And here's the cherry on top of the cake. There will be some temporal blessings that he indeed wants to give. I know this is a setup question here in Scottsdale, but let me ask the operative question. How many of you feel somewhat blessed in your life right now? Raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's a loaded question in a town like this. But the reality is, is that if you ask many people, even worldwide, many, do they feel that God has blessed them to some measure in their life? They would say yes. I've been to China, I've been to Africa, I've been to places where you don't know if they would actually say that. I've been to the Middle East. And followers of Jesus do. Because it's not that he doesn't want to bless us, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the reality is, is that that's not the promise. That's the cherry on top of the cake. Give me a head now that y'all see that. The cake is that he says to you, you don't have to go to hell. <laughs> the cake is that I give you eternal life. The cake is that I will be present and powerful in your life in which you can have a relationship with God that will take you all the way to heaven. That's the cake. And that's what he's asking us, that and everything else, to trust him for. I want to wrap up with one story and then we're going to have a time of commitment here. My, my hero here is a guy in my last church by the, the, the name of Lee. And Lee was an older gentleman. When I was there, he was in his 80s, and I've been gone almost a decade now. And Lee was a dear friend of my parents when I was in Cleveland. And Lee was a very successful neurosurgeon in the Cleveland area. And, and Lee was a very, very, um, how would I say it, proper, prim and proper man. He was a Lebanese immigrant that was just very sophisticated. And, and Lee was a, a very much a man of class. He, he would come to church every week in a suit and he would think of no less. Uh, he spoke with very, very good diction. He was a quiet man where still waters run deep and, and very much a committed follower of Jesus. He was Presbyterian, I think, by, by upbringing and, and, and had now migrated to a very large Bible teaching church in the Cleveland area. But then he would also come to my more medium-sized church when I was pastoring there, partly because uh, my parents were friends with him, partly because he really liked my preaching, which is understandable, and then partly because, and then partly because uh, his son, John, was the drummer in our band. And, 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 and Lee really was an amazing guy. I had seen him almost every Sunday in church, and I, I, just, I developed a great friendship with him. Lee also is my hero because of how he related to Jesus. You see, about 30 years before I met Lee, uh, his wife had died when they were in their 50s. And, you know, some of you who have experienced loss know that when somebody loses a spouse, whether a husband or a wife, they, um, they might marry within the next couple of years, but not Lee. His wife, I came to find out, and this is so precious, his wife was everything to him. I, I mean, in his mind, there was none other than his wife, Betsy. 
and there would never be another. And when he lost Betsy, again, people tried to say to him, I think, you know, you should remarry, move on and all that. And, and he never did. And he would talk to me about Betsy just like she was still with us now. And it was very much one of those once-in-a-lifetime love affairs. And, 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 and he just grieved the loss of her perpetually until he would go to be with Jesus. To show you the power of this, I, at one point I knew that Lee had a cabin on a lake in another state. I'd been there when I was a kid, and he lent it to my parents. And at one point I asked him about his cabin, if he still has it. He says, yeah. And I said, oh, do you go there very often? He goes, I haven't been there in 30 years. I said, why not? He said, because that was mine and Betsy's. And he said, and it's too painful to go there, but I'll never sell it because it was ours. And, and he let his kids use it and other people. But, I, you know, some people would think that was crazy. I thought it was so endearing. And I thought, wow, well, you just don't see love like that very often. And I got to believe that that grief and that pain was with him always. But you know one thing I never saw in Lee, and I'm sure he wrestled with this, but I never saw or heard him blame Jesus for any of that. That was a temporal reality. That, that was a grief he had in a fallen world. And he never tied those things to his trust in Jesus. And he was a man. Our mission statement here, our vision statement is to be a church of unwavering faith. This was a man of unwavering faith. To show you how much faith this guy had, as I said, he would come to my church every Sunday as well as this more formal, larger church on Sunday. And he's always sit, like some of you do, right on the, the, the side aisle there and had his little seat. And, uh, and he'd always have his Bible with him, which endeared me to him. You know, he's got his Bible. And I greeted him one day as he was reading his Bible before church. And I said, Lee, I just love the fact that George is reading your Bible in church. And he kind of stunned me. He said, yeah. He goes, I, I do like to have my Bible when I read it in church. He said, I also have it so that when uh, we sing songs that I don't know nor like, which were probably all of them because they were contemporary songs and he was an old hymn guy. He said, when we sing songs that I don't know or like, he says, instead of shutting down on God, I open up and I read the Psalms during those songs because I would never want to rob God of my worship. And I remember walking away going, who thinks like that? <laughs> Only a very godly person would think like that. And that was my friend Lee. And as I've gotten older, that was a decade now since I've seen him, I've always hoped that no matter what would ever befall me, heaven forbid I should lose my dear wife Kim or one of my kids. I mean, I can't even imagine how painful that would be or if maybe I ever lost my church or whatever it might be. Whatever might happen to me, I've always hoped and prayed that I would have a ruthless trust in Jesus, that no temporal reality could ever separate me from him. As he would go on to say, they can kill the body, but they can't harm the soul. I'd love that to be my life vision. How about you? We're going to enter into a time today of commitment. I, when I was planning this series over a year ago on my summer break last summer, I knew that in June we'd be heading toward commitment time. We do this about once every quarter, if not less or more often. And by commitment, that means I'm going to call you, and we're going to do it at our campuses and venues, to a time of committing yourselves to the Lord. Now, very quickly, before we hand it off to our campus pastors, and you want to dial into this, there are four types of people in this room at Cactus, Mountain Valley, and then our venue and, and chapel, and even watching online. There are four types of people. The first type of person is that there are those of you who came in here today essentially God-satisfied. And that's a good thing. 
And maybe, maybe it's you, Epley. You came in here today and you're just, you're doing great spiritually or at least really good spiritually. You're walking with the Lord. He's satisfying your soul. You feel good and you came in here today because worship is part of your obligation. It's also what gives you joy, allowing you to worship God in the congregation. And for you, we're probably not going to ask any type of commitment from you today because that would be fake, but we're going to ask you to stay in your seat and to pray for the rest of us. <laughs> and then there's a second great type of person here today. There are those who are not God-satisfied, but you're also not ready for a change. That makes me sad for you. I wish it would otherwise, but we are a church of grace and acceptance because God is that way, and we hope you hang in there and never give up, stay in the ring with God, but for whatever reason today, you're not ready to respond to Jesus. You still want more time to think and pray. The only encouragement I would give you is don't wait too long because as we found with Lazarus, life is short, and so you're going to want uh, to make sure that you don't sit there that long, but you continue to ponder the things of God and respond to his son. Then there's a third group of people here today, and this is the most touching to me. It's those of you who are ready to say, like Martha did, yes, Lord, I believe. For the very first time, and we had some people do this last night, you are ready to respond to Jesus. You've never fully believed in him and trusted in him for eternal life. You've been playing games maybe as a church person or maybe you're a seeker here today, but you've never responded to the gospel with robust faith and trust in Jesus. And we're gonna give you a chance to do that here in a minute. And then there's a fourth group of you here today, and this is sometimes a sizable group, and it's those of you who have believed you're clearly saved. You've responded to Jesus, maybe uh, during an Awana club when you were six or as a teenager or as an adult, uh, but you now need to re-up. You need to recommit your lives. You need to enter into what we're calling today ruthless trust. Uh, to, to put it bluntly, you're a lot like Martha in our story here. <laughs> You've allowed the temporal realities of your life to take forefront. You've allowed those things to cloud your vision of God and your relationship with him. It happens a lot in a fallen world. There's no shame in it. It's just that God calls us repeatedly at times to then make a commitment once again. It's the prodigal coming home, if you will. Because the prodigal was already a son. <laughs> he just left the farm. And so it's the prodigal coming home to him again. And we're going to give you a chance to respond with trust today to the Savior you know. But to mark today as your day of recommitment. I'm going to now pray and, and send off our campuses and venues to uh, their own respective pastors so they can have a time of commitment there. And then I'll talk to you about what we're going to do here in wrapping up our service. And so why don't we do this? Let's bow and pray right now and enter into this holy time of commitment. Father God, I thank you for the amazing teachings of the Lord Jesus here that are both tender as well as tough at the same time. They're tender because they touch the core of our longing for you and our heart's desire. They're tough because they call us to a level of trust. Even when temporal realities don't make sense, a trust to put our, plate, our confidence in you and to really let you have control of our lives. And so, Father, I pray for those who are ready to believe today for the first time. I pray for those who are ready to recommit their lives today that this would be a day that they never forget and that we would look back on this day, all of us, and say only God. And it's only in your name we pray. And we all say together, amen.